Please stand with me and turn to Psalm 35. Psalm 35. Of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Why? For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let that net be that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication, from my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. Let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Please be seated. And please bow with me as we go to the Lord. Lord, we, we come to you asking for your help this morning. I pray that you would bless your people with ears to hear and eyes to see what you would speak to us in your word today. I pray that you would bless these words that I've prepared, that you would use this feeble attempt 
this weak vessel to speak to your people. That you would minister as your people need ministered to today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And thinking about such a psalm, such a dramatic psalm in many ways, dealing with something as terrifying as enemies who might seek your life, David's life, I, a thought I want in the back of our heads through this whole sermon is, if, is 1 Peter 4.12, where Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And I want this in the back of our minds, really through the whole sermon. The idea that what is described in this psalm should not be seen as strange for the experience of the Christian. And I fear in our modern comforts, it appears strange. We have a certain expectation of a certain standard of life, certain life experiences where this doesn't necessarily fit in the picture. And so we act like when these trials come upon us, that's the strange thing that happens. But the Bible says no. Actually, the extended period of comfortability and peace, that's the unusual thing. The strange, that's the strange thing. The, the thing that's not strange is opposition and hard opposition, bitter opposition. Looking at the psalm, Psalm 35. Some inscriptions, well, like last time in Psalm 34, we had a little bit of an indication as the historical background. In this psalm, we're not given anything. We're just told it's of David. But with that, I really do think, as we read earlier, uh, 1 Samuel 24, I think is about as good of a historical background as we could uh, determine for this psalm. And I just want to hop through a few verses in 1 Samuel 24, just noting verse 9. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? The idea here that there are people whispering in Saul's ear. David does not love you. David does not want to serve you. David's your enemy, and he's actually seeking to kill you. There are malicious witnesses that rise up. People willing to lie and slander David. Verse 11, See, my father, See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life and take it. You see multiple things here that correlate to our psalm. You see, one, David is eager to do good to his enemies. He doesn't seek their harm. He's seeking their good. But in response, the good is paid for evil and to such a degree that Saul is hunting him pursuing him, leaving his home, and exerting a great deal of effort to find him and kill him. Verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And this is really what the whole psalm is about. Trusting that the Lord is going to make these things right. I don't need to take matters into my own hands sinfully to correct them on my own. The Lord is my salvation. I am not my salvation which is what David's denying in this text. If I want to be my own salvation, then I strike Saul right here and now. But David ref refuses such a temptation. And so it serves as a good background for our psalm. And I'm going to go through this psalm very differently 
than I have through the other Psalms. We are not going to go through verse by verse. It's a little longer of a Psalm. There's a lot of repetition. So what I'm going to endeavor to do is to handle the sermon kind of topically. We're going to look at different uh, subjects and ideas and kind of drop into the Psalm as we see them. So hopefully I don't lose you in that. But the outline, first, we're going to observe the nature of the enemies that are shown in the psalm. We're going to be kind of peppering through this psalm, looking at what are the enemies here? How, what are they like? And then we're going to do the same thing, but we're going to observe the nature of God's salvation and try to learn what this psalm points to in the nature of God's salvation. And then finally... We're going to try and consider how we might renew our minds to deal with our own enemies who may hate us without cause. How can the Bible help us to think differently about those that we know, names and faces of people we know, who kind of fit the profile of what we see in this psalm? So with that, we're going to begin observing the nature of the enemies we see in this psalm. And I'm going to give you the characteristics, and then we're going to kind of go through them. So, first characteristic, they hate David without cause. There's a causeless nature to this hatred. There's no good reason for it. They devise evil against David. There's a thoughtful aspect of this. This isn't like a a passing fancy. This is something that's obsessive. Um, Three, they repay evil for good. Good is shown to these enemies, and the repayment is wickedness, hatred, slapping back. They rejoice at David's stumbling, for they rejoice at the people of God's stumbling, almost sitting at the edge of their seat, waiting for something to celebrate, which would be a downturn in the fortunes of God's people. They slander God's people. They lie. They fabricate things for the destruction of God's people. And they seek the life. They seek the lives of God's people. So again, they hate without cause. They devise evil. They repay evil for good. They rejoice at the stumbling of God's people. They slander God's people. And they seek the life of God's people. So, let's look at this a little bit. Verse 7. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. And then verse 19, let not those who rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, let not those who wink the eye who hate me without cause. There's a lot of repetition of this idea that they don't have a good reason. If you ask them, why are you doing this? They can't really give you a great reason as to why. And this is especially true in Saul's case, right? When we consider this possible context for the psalm, if you were to ask Saul, why are you hunting David? Why are you going after him? David has done nothing but serve you. David has done nothing but praise you. And yet Saul has this blind, obsessive rage that drives him to hunt him, to seek him out. It's a causeless hatred. And as we consider this kind of thing, it's good, but there's there's a danger and considering the subject in that, well, we always, rightfully, can find fault in ourselves. And we can ask ourselves, is there truly a causeless hatred that can be against us? 
We can go back to 1 Peter 4. There's a little bit of help or a little bit of explanation given to this idea. In 1 Peter 4, verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so, yes, we can talk, we can be introspective. And when we think about those that might oppose us, we could probably come up with reasons why, okay, I did sin against them in this way, or I was not necessarily the best I could be with them in this way, and maybe that justifies their anger. But what we're seeing here is that God's enemies do hate God's people with a rage that is unjustified. It is focused on the God of the people and not even necessarily the people themselves. Any degree of faithfulness to God that is shown is a reason to hate them. Any degree of love for God only stokes the flames. So even if there is, a, even if there is parts of it, and there will be, parts of it that are tainted with our sin, we see what's described here is ultimately, they're not mad at you. They're mad at God. There was an interesting thing I read this week talking about this with David. Uh, Somebody brought up Ahithophel in this context. And if you remember Ahithophel, he was the revered uh, counselor of King David while he's on the throne. And when Absalom goes to start the civil war against his father, Ahithophel defects and joins Absalom. And if you follow the rabbit trails, there's actually a case you can make that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, which is very interesting. It might imply that some of that is a root of bitterness that might... Uh, further instigate him to join with Absalom, but does that justify him? And the answer is no. Ahithophel was wicked, and even if there's a root of that involved, a bitterness towards David because of what he did to his granddaughter, he's ultimately rebelling against who God has chosen to be king. And there's a finger pointed at God in this defection. And so it's true with us. We, are, we may have a hard time thinking of names and faces and thinking their hatred of me is unjustified. But the key detail here is, do they hate me because I'm trying to serve God? And I think it's much easier to see instances of those, those examples. We see the devising of evil against God's people. Again, this isn't just a passing fancy. It's not a fleeting thought. It's, it becomes an all-consuming passion of the enemies of God's people. It's something that motivates them, gets them up in the morning, makes it hard to sleep at night. Bitterness, anger, and hatred of God's people and the God that they serve. They repay evil for good. And this is so instructive in verses 12 through 14. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. And this is extremely strong language. David, David is really seeking the good of those who hate him. And I don't take this to mean that David did this while they didn't hate him. And they decided to hate him and then they repaid that good for evil. I take this to mean that even while they hated him, David was 
praying for their good, fasting for their good, afflicting himself for their good, weeping and mourning as if for a friend or a family member. And you, if you remember in 1 Samuel 24, David does refer to Saul as his father, even as Saul is hunting him, seeking to kill him. There is still some level of respect and even admiration and even affection for Saul, even as Saul is doing this horrible, wicked thing. Saul wipes out a city of priests because they harbored David. Saul's unhinged. And if there's any unhinged character in the Old Testament, Saul is one of the high-ranking candidates for that label. And yet David still shows some level of affection for him. And this might help us because we, we struggle, and I think rightly so, with these imprecatory psalms. There's so much language in the New Testament especially, about loving our enemies, doing good to them. And we struggle to have a place for these imprecatory psalms in our piety. But these verses show one important detail right away. This was not David's first reflex, right? Because David's showing a pattern of praying for his enemies, fasting for his enemies, seeking their good. This is an extended season of this opposition. The imprecatory psalm comes later. The imprecatory psalm is not an itchy trigger finger like the sons of thunder. Shall we ask God to rain fire down on this Samaritan village? That is not the first impulse of God's people. The first impulse of God's people is to be willing to suffer and eager to show love. And after an extended period of unhinged, unreasonable hatred without cause that is actually killing, taking the life, there is a place to pray, Lord, end this. Take him out. Stop this. For the sake of your people. They rejoice at David's stumbling. Just in the next few verses, 15 and 16. But at my stumbling, they, the enemies of God, rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. And what's fascinating about this verse, notice not only do they rejoice at his stumbling, but they gather. There's wicked fellowship that is predicated upon the hatred of God's people. There's a unity that comes from the enemies of, or comes within the enemies of God's people. People who normally don't like each other, don't have a natural reason to get along, they find a common enemy in God's people and unite. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. And there's like this profane mockers at a feast. They're fellowshipping. They're eating together. Commiserating over their common hatred. Commiserating over their common eagerness to see the downfall of God's people. You see in verse 25, Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. It's such an incredible thing. What is your heart's desire? The idea that there's a singular aspect to this. As if there's like a singular motivating factor to how you live your life and what you want out of life. And for these guys, that heart's desire is to swallow him up. This obsessive pursuit of the destruction of God's people now, you might be thinking, if 
you're trying to critically think about this. Well, what about you, David? Isn't this whole psalm just kind of a pretense to rejoice at the stumbling of your enemies? Isn't that what imprecatory psalms are all about? Pray for the destruction of my enemies. God answers the prayers. I celebrate. Man, it's good those guys are dead. We can be tempted to think that way, but hopefully, if you turn to Proverbs 24, we get some wisdom in regards to this subject. Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. And so we see this general principle, this general wisdom. We're not to rejoice at our enemies. And I think this helps us to seek another explanation to this possible challenge. Is David seeking to rejoice at the downfall of his enemies? And as you look at Psalm 35, there are instances where he does rejoice, where he does want to rejoice. But look at what he wants to rejoice in. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. There are, just give you some, an idea of what's going on here. This whole chapter is punctuated with praise. There's a prayer, do, save me from my enemies, praise. This is what my enemies have done, praise. This is why my enemies need to be stopped, praise. And so we're looking at that, verses 9 and 10. Then my soul will rejoice in the destruction of my enemies. No, the Lord exulting in his salvation, not exulting in the damnation of those wicked people that so deserved it and had it coming, and man, I'm glad those guys are gone, but exulting in the salvation of God. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, and the poor and needy from him who robs him. The second punctuation of praise, verses 17 and 18. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Again, the focus is on rejoicing in the Lord and not rejoicing in the destruction of his enemies. Verses 27 and 28. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, ding dong, the witch is dead, the wicked witch is dead. No. (laughs) Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. And so the orientation is different. I don't think we can rightly charge David here with being eager to rejoice at the stumbling of his enemies. You hypocrite. You're upset when they rejoice at your stumbling. No. David... And as an example to God's people, we don't want to rejoice at the death of our enemies. I hope it's not too hard to hear, but back when Bin Laden was killed, I remember an episode on the Glenn Beck program where they brought in a band, fanfare, cymbals, drums, trumpets, and there was just something that seemed like doesn't seem quite right. That seems to be like celebrating that that SOB is dead. Right? You get that kind of idea. And I think we got to be careful. Yeah, we're glad that the terrorist is, is gone. He will no longer be orchestrating plans against those, against his enemies, against us. 
We're glad that this wicked man is gone and that his wickedness has ended. But I think you've entered a different realm when you bring out the band and the confetti and that kind of idea. David rejoices that his Lord is the one that brings salvation. It gets personal. They bring slander against David and God's people. And we looked at this in 1 Samuel 24, verse 9. There are people whispering in Saul's ear, David actually wants to kill you. David seeks your harm. And Saul is twisted and tormented by this. He believes the lie and is willing then to embellish those lies himself. And this isn't the only time you see this kind of thing. You see this throughout the Scriptures. Just for one example, I'm I'm struck in reflecting upon Joseph's life. And yes, his brothers abuse him and then lie about it to their father, but even after that with Potiphar, when Joseph serves Potiphar, he serves him well. He loves the family, wants to serve the family well, but his wife has eyes for him, seeks to seduce him, and when she is rebuffed, what does she do? She slanders him. She lies about him. And he's thrown in the royal prison as a result of it. Another way of wording it, because Joseph sought to be faithful, because Joseph sought to live in the sight of God in a righteous way, he was hated and persecuted because of it. We see that they seek the life of God's people. Verse verse 7. For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. You see in verse 4, they seek after my life. Verse 17, rescue my life from my precious life from the lions. His life is on the line. And we've seen this throughout David's life. It's with Saul. It's with Absalom. It's with so many of his enemies. His life is on the line. We see it with Jezebel seeking to execute the prophets of God. Elijah flees into the wilderness. And while we're on that track, I want to look at 1 Kings 21 just for another example of this kind of theme. What we see in the enemies of God and what we see in those who are God's people. First Kings 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the place of the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The idea here is that this land is not just a capitalistic asset transfer. There's a theological weight to what's going on here. This land has been given to his family by God when Joshua conquered the land and the land was dispersed among the tribes and then amongst the families of those tribes. And so Naboth said, this land is my family's given by God. It's not for me to give. I can't give it. The Lord forbid that I give it. Nahab went into his house and was vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no food. 
There's the obsessive factor of this. He is just torn up, cannot handle this show of faithfulness. And Jezebel comes along and says, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it for you. Verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in their letters that, he, that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. What do we see about the nature of the enemies of God in this chapter? There's a causeless hatred. There was absolutely no reason for this level of opposition and brutality. They devise evil against God's people, working wicked schemes to bring about the end of God's people. They repay evil for good. Naboth is set in a place of honor here, implying that he did good. He did things deserving of being set in a place of honor. They rejoice at his stumbling. At his stumbling, they get the vineyard. They slander Naboth, these worthless men that are taken to bring false accusation. Lies devised to bring down God's people. And of course, they sought his life. When we consider, there are so many examples we could look to, but none are greater than Christ. And you might be interested to know, in John 15, Christ quotes from Psalm 35. In John 15, starting in verse 24, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And so Christ is essentially saying here, this is true of God's people. This is true of David. This is true of Naboth. This is true of all people who seek to faithfully serve the Lord. But it is ultimately true of me that they hated me without a cause. They devised evil against Christ in their hidden chambers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes. They repaid Christ's good with evil. Who did more good than Christ did? They rejoiced at Christ's stumbling. And we talked about the gathering, the fellowship around opposition to God's people. It's so striking in Luke 23 to see how this plays out in Christ's example. Luke 23, verses 8 through 12. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Herod and Pilate hated each other. They had warfare 
between them, enmity. But what brought them together? Mocking Christ. Opposition to Christ. This is what was the great uniter between these bitter political rivals. They slander Christ. And again, I just want you to see this. Matthew 26. The parallels with our psalm and with Naboth. Matthew 26, verses 59 and 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Christ that they might put Him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. And I I, I want to add, I'm tempted to add, two worthless men came forward. Worthless fellows came forward. They found, maybe they were able, maybe they were bought with a couple coins. Are you willing to say this about this person? It's not true. There's no truth value to it whatsoever, but that doesn't doesn't matter. That's kind of the point. And of course, they sought Christ's life. In John 15, where Jesus quotes Psalm 35, he applies Psalm 35 to himself, but he does more than that. Beginning the paragraph in verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20 is very potent, very strong in its language. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And again, we're back to this idea. Do you count it strange when these things happen to you? Do you act like the thing that's out of the ordinary is opposition? The thing that I should... This isn't the way things should be when I'm hated without a cause, when people lie about me because I'm attempting some level of faithfulness. Or do we understand with a biblical lens, no, this this is the way it is. We're not above our master. A servant is not above his master. They persecuted him. They will also persecute us. Don't count it strange when fiery trial comes upon you as if something strange was happening to you. And with that, I don't want to belabor this point. I just want to ask, just to throw it out there. Do you have enemies that in any measure look like this? I'm not talking about people, like there are people putting bounties on your head. (laughs) Hunting you. But are there people that have distaste for you because you're attempting some level of faithfulness to God? Are there people that have voiced opposition because in some way you're trying to say, I just want to serve Christ. I want to love Him. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't fellowship with you in the way that you want me to. Is there any sense that this is a reality in your life? And one thing among many to ask yourselves if it's not the case is, am I seeking to be faithful in the faith, where I am I fellowshipping with darkness where I shouldn't be? 
Am I seeking a comfortability with the world? Am I seeking to live in such a way where I'm minimizing any opportunity for opposition? Am I living in a way that I'm, I'm prioritizing being non-confrontational above everything else? And the Bible says many things about seeking to live peaceably with all, but that's not what the Bible means by that. To live in a compromising way so that I might not have to live in a way that confronts anything. With this, how do we get deliverance from those who might oppose us? How does deliverance gain for God's people? Well, Psalm 35 as a whole speaks to this. You cry out to God for salvation. The whole psalm is a cry to God for salvation. You see it in the first three verses. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of the shield and the buckler and rise for my help. These things are defensive implements. Protect me with the shield and the buckler. But then you also see draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. These are offensive implements. Protect me. Bring them down. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. We see throughout this psalm, verses 4 through 6, David asks for the defeat of his enemies. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. We see in verses 22 through 24, David asks for more than deliverance from his enemies, but vindication. May I be seen to be in the right. May the wrongs be made right. After they open their, wide, their mouths wide at him, and they say, aha, in verse 21, our eyes have seen it. They're claiming to have seen some secret sin that they're going to destroy you with. David says, Lord, you have seen. You know the truth. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. And with verse 3, we see that part of this cry, Lord, remind me. Lord, drill into my mind the source of my salvation. Say to my soul, Lord, speak to my soul. I am your salvation. So when we see the nature of our salvation, God's salvation, he asks for the defeat of his enemies, he asks for us to be made right, and he asks to be reminded of the source of these things. I am your salvation. Part of this is an admittance of powerlessness. You see this in this psalm, verse 10. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. David is identifying as the poor who is powerless here. And his enemies are too strong for him. I don't have the power within me to save myself. I need God to save me. We looked a few psalms ago in Psalm 33, verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. All of this is an admittance. I'm not able to save myself. I'm not able to control my destiny. I need God to deliver me. I need God to save me. And we know that with David, 
Old Covenant, there's a primary focus on temporal enemies. A primary focus on Saul, a wicked king that's chasing him in the wilderness. Primary focus on foreign Gentile nations that pose a threat to God's people. Enemies within, looking at his son Absalom and other upstarts that might try to take the crown from him. These are all physical people, names and faces that are opposing God's kingdom because back then God's kingdom was the kingdom of Israel. But we have a much greater salvation available to us and Jesus Christ because we're acknowledging a much broader set of enemies. What enemies do we need salvation from? Well, the world, of course, and this encapsulates a lot of what David is explicitly praying for. There are names and faces of people that oppose God's people. There are world systems, government entities that seek to put down God's people and persecute them. We see our flesh, our enslavement to sin. I, I have in my mind when Albert Martin, when he was talking about this, sin beckons. And you say, yes, master. Sin says, give me your eyes that you may look upon this thing. And yes, absolutely. Sin says, give me your hands that you may touch this forbidden thing. And in our, in our flesh, we're bound. Yes, master, absolutely. We're powerless to defeat this on our own. We have the devil, an enemy much too powerful for us in our own flesh. And as if those things were not enough, there's death itself that takes us all. But in Christ, there's salvation from all these things. In 1 John 5, a wonderful, triumphant passage. 1 John 5, we're just looking at verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Victory over the world. We, we rightly look at what's going on in our world today and there is a lot to be concerned about, is there not? Terrible things happening in our own country. Terrible things happening all over the world. And yet we're promised that Christ has overcome the world. And we're promised that all those who believe in him will overcome the world. It's not up to us to culture warrior our culture back into some level of sanity. I mean, I'll celebrate if that happens. <laughs> but our hope isn't banking on that. I don't need that. Christ has overcome the world and he's won the victory. In our flesh, our chains are broken. I'm no longer bound compulsively to answer when sin calls. I've been born again by the power of Jesus Christ. The devil is a defeated enemy. The serpent's head has been crushed. While the world may still be under the sway of the evil one, God's people don't have to be. God's people have a new father. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
And what does it take to get this deliverance? To cry out and believe. And you see this implicitly in Psalm 35. David is crying out because he believes God is able to deliver him. He has no doubt in his mind that God is able and willing to deliver him from these things. And it's true with us. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do I care about my hate-filled enemies when I am secured in Christ? My enemies may hate me without cause. But I serve a God that while he had cause to hate me, would have rightfully been right to hate me and destroy me. He also loved me so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for me. I may have enemies that devise evil against me, but the Lord so devises my good that my salvation was ordained before the foundation of the earth. What can man do to me? I may have enemies that repay my good with evil, but in Christ, my blood-stained rags, what I've done for evil, turn to good, turn to righteousness. Robes whiter than snow. I may have enemies that rejoice at my stumbling, but I have a God who rejoices to work all things for my good. I may have enemies eager to lie about me and slander my name, but I have a new name in Christ that cannot be touched. To the one who conquers, I will give a name that will be written on the stone that no one will know. God's enemies can't touch that name. I may have enemies who seek my life, but my Lord Jesus has conquered death. And while we, we cling to these truths, we cry out in God for salvation from our enemies, both physical and immaterial. We celebrate in what He's done for us, cling to these things, but we still do have enemies that are before us. We still do have names and faces of people that slander us, lie about us. And so how do we, how do we live in this state? Even acknowledging these acknowledging God's salvation and clinging to that, how can I renew my mind so that I can live in a faithful way in the face of such opposition? A few points of application real quick. One thing that can help us to live in a faithful way in the face of opposition is to put to death any sense of entitlement in us to, well, to put it bluntly, the American dream, what I mean by that. I think we have this idea because we're Americans and we're born into a pretty wealthy place that I'm entitled, that I have rights, that I'm entitled to a prosperous, peaceful, comfortable, quiet life. I'm entitled to these things. That's my due as an American. That has to be put to death. Because if you think that way, you're going to think it's strange when the fiery trials come upon you, right? And so that idea has to be killed. Has to be put to death. I'm not entitled to those things. The strange thing is when those things happen. And we can thank God if those things happen for a period of time. But that's the anomaly. And if I think in terms of this is the way my life should be, that I get my three-quarter, well, in my case, if I get 20 acres and I get all the animals I want and I can do my little homestead thing and live peacefully... If I don't get it, then I'm mad because I think I'm entitled to that. I'm going to have a hard time. When there's real opposition, when there are people who hate me without cause, when there are people willing to lie about me, and it doesn't fit this picture I have for my life. 
we have to renew our minds and put that to death. Second point of application. God works all things for our good. All things. All things. All things. Even trauma. Even the most horrific things that we can articulate and put into words. All things, yes. All things. Turn to Genesis 50. And just reflect on Joseph's life. Joseph went out one day to visit his brothers at his dad's request. And when he comes upon his brothers, what does he get? They grab him, they strip him, they beat him, they throw him in a pit, probably telling him they're going to kill him. Right away, I want to talk about trauma, that's trauma, right? How do you, how do you work through this experience of these people that you love, these people that you come out to visit, seeking their good, and they just grab you, start beating you, throw you in a pit, you're going to die. And they're probably happy about it. But then, they figure they might as well make some money on it, adding to the trauma. We're going to sell you to foreign people. You don't even know what they're saying. You don't know their language. We're probably never going to see you again. You're going into a foreign country as a slave. While in that foreign country, you do your best to serve the people that, you, that own you now. And for your trouble, you're accused of rape and thrown in a royal prison for multiple years. Trauma, right? Just, to, just try to imagine that you've experienced this for a moment. Something to this level. And then your brothers show up years later at your mercy, and they need help from you. Would, any of, would anyone really criticize you if you just arrested them and executed them right there? Would anyone really fault you for that? If you explain all that, probably not. And even consider man-stealing is a capital offense under the Mosaic Law. So there's even a sense of justification for this. But what do we read in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20? And I go into all that because we're tempted to just spiritualize this and make it fluffy, make it not as visceral as it is. So it's harder to let this penetrate our hearts. Verses 19 and 20, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants, in verse 18. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Right away, that's instructive. He says, if I were to strike you down, I would be taking the place that God has. I don't have the prerogative to strike you down. It's not my place. But what helps him to follow through with this? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Really? Being beat by your brothers, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, accused of rape, thrown in a prison, God meant that for good? God intended that for good? God worked that for good? Yes. And if we're going to have, if we're going to equip ourselves, if we're going to renew our minds to deal with our own enemies, we ought to strive to think this way. That whatever opposition we're receiving, it is for good, for my good, for God's people's good. And 
skipping for the sake of time. Understanding vengeance is good, vengeance is beautiful, but vengeance is not ours. First of all, understanding vengeance is good, it's beautiful, there is a sense of loveliness to it, but it's the Lord's. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not something for me to have. And it becomes twisted and ugly and distorted when we do take it for ourselves. We do good to our enemies to try and renew our minds, praying for them. Jesus on the way to the cross, forgive them, they know not what they do. Working for their good, Romans 12, 20 through 21, speaks to this. But I want to get to loving them. John 13. This strikes me. John 13, 8. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, Oh, I did this last time. It's 13, 18. (laughs) 13, 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's talking about Judas. Someone who's opposing him. Wicked opposition. And he quotes a psalm. And that psalm, Psalm 41, verse 9, helps us to understand Jesus' view of his enemy, Judas. Psalm 41, verse 9, what he's quoting says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Was Jesus unaware of Judas' intentions? No. Jesus knew that Judas would ultimately betray him, that he was not who he professed to be. He was a traitor. He was a liar. He was a deceiver and a destroyer. And yet in the psalm that he's quoting, we get some insight that Judas was still treated as a close friend, someone whom he could, yes, even love. You hear things like this and you think, well, how can we possibly do this? This is greater than I can do. Well, and like we said earlier, yes, it is. It is greater than what we can do in our own strength. And that's step one to renewing our minds, living this way. It's not in my own strength to do this. I must call out for help from the Spirit of God, for Him to work in me, to bring these things about. And with that, John 15, Jesus warns his disciples, if the world hates me, they're going to hate you. Servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They hated me without a cause. What does he say immediately after that? He doesn't say good luck. (laughs) He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Doesn't say, well, it's going to be really bad. Good luck. He says, no, the helper's going to come. He will be with you. And so, to end, 1 Peter 4 again. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Rest in Christ and trust your soul to the creator 
while doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. I trust that we all have felt the sting of betrayal, people that we loved and trusted, who've lied about us, who've slandered us. We've all felt the sting of someone who's lashed out against us with no cause, or at least no, their cause is their hatred of you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to cling to you as our salvation, that we would entrust our souls to you, and that you would empower us to do good by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.